The Big Small Business Show is brought to you by Chartered Accountants of South Africa. Transform the future of your business. Partner with the CASA today. And the courage to grow is business. MTN Business. A new world of business. On the menu today, here's another hypothetical. You know two people. One is, is uh, Mr. Mr. or Mrs. so-and-so kind of person. Mm-hmm. They're very formal. The other one's, hey dude, how's it going, dude? Jeez. That kind of person. How do you introduce them? When you have an ability to hear, not just actively listen, your people will tell you what the problems are. If they can identify the problem, they also know the solution. The song that we hear, both Kumar and I, very often from entrepreneurs is I can't find money, I can't access finance, no one wants to lend me money. Hello and welcome to the Big Small Business Show. On this show we support entrepreneurs throughout their entrepreneurial journey. If you are an entrepreneur that's having uh, an issue, we have a slot on our show which is called Panel and you can uh, email us and we will bring you onto the show and talk about your issue in the business. Now, our normal panel discussion sometimes changes to what we call the avoided debate. These are the issues that entrepreneurs uh, talk about behind the scenes but uh, don't really uh, air in public. And uh, today our avoided debate is about the subject of formality. Formality in a very sensitive uh, country such as South Africa is uh, often uh, not spoken about because uh, it has different cultural nuances, it has different age nuances, and it has different sector nuances. Uh, and today with us uh, in, uh, on our panel are our normal gurus, uh, Lisa Sam, welcome. Thank you, Alan. Who's normally our marketing guru, but today she's our formality guru. <laughs> and our informal guru is uh, Kumaran Padiyachi. <laughs> uh, his normal day job is uh, the CEO of Spartan SME Finance. Did I get it right? Okay. Right, so, so guys, we're going to talk about um, formality and um, the different as- aspects of for- formality because from, from my perspective, very often, Deals can be broken because of things that you don't even consider. You know, when you're walking into an environment, you might uh, think, you know, that you are completely in inverted commas normal and are acting in a normal way, dressed in a normal way, and the other person might see it as an offensive thing. Or the opposite, where they, you know, because of how you come across and your formality, it could actually conclude a deal for you. So um, I wanted to sort of keep this discussion not too right and wrong but with a specific um, emphasis on from a, a small business from a business perspective around formality so let's start off with uh, I think a, a, a expected uh, form- formality which is how I dress here I am I'm dressed with my rose corp logo you are looking absolutely magnificent. Uh, Thank and you. Well, we won't talk much about y- you. But normally on the show, you have a suit, you have a suit jacket, and you come in a formal context. Let's just talk about why you dress the way you do. Why are you dressed like this today? 
Well, mostly to reflect the person that I am, um, which is in a nutshell neat and presentable and approachable. Um, and so obviously you adapt to, to the setting, but always keeping to, I always keep to the core of who I am. So I will never, f as, as a silly example, and uh, you'll never find me in high heels and, and, and very high, because that's just not me. Mm. But I respect the, the, the aspect of wearing you know, slightly elevated shoes in a different context. Um, so I think for me, it's sticking to who I am to create an impression of being approachable, neat, and somebody that you can have a business rapport with. So this is why Have I you ever been in a situation where you, you, your dress, you felt uncomfortable about how you were dressed? Like you came into an environment and you thought, oh, I should have either dressed up or dressed down. Or, have you ever been in that, that situation? Maybe in social settings, but never in a business setting. Um, because I, I take time to, if possible, study who I'm going to meet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, thank goodness for Google, you can have images of the person, you get a sense of how they present themselves and you, you try and match that. Funnily enough, where I have felt out of place, not underdressed or overdressed, is when I was in an environment where people were, I felt, inappropriately dressed. And I mean, that's very subjective. Mm. So that immediately told me I'm not, uh, I, I'm, I don't fit into that, whatever they would be bringing together, mm. because uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not Those that. People. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's, okay. that's how I can best describe that. Come on and just look, you know, you, you, uh, I know you've, uh, on a social level as well, and I see you always in these power suits. Um, and you've, um, do, do you consider when you wake up in the morning and you're going to a meeting, do you, do you say, okay, I'm meeting these people, these are the kind of suits I wear, or I, you know, just a jacket will do fine. Do you actually govern your dress based on, on who you meet in the day? I would say not really anymore, I, um, because it gets a bit tedious. So I dress for my business context. My business context is a business casual. So a suit without a tie, because it gets a bit stuffy with stick now wearing a tie. So that's like, you know, a bit more relaxed uh, business type of attire. I can take the jacket off if it's hot roll, the sleeves or whatever it is. And uh, because I'm in the finance trade, so it's yes. a serious trade. Mm. Uh, I could be meeting with our international funders the one moment and an entrepreneur dressed with shorts the next. So I've always grown up kind of wearing uh, suits, and I like a more casual type of suit, you know, what's minus the tie. But now and again, I enjoy a bit of casual wear. This morning, I was supposed to wear a suit, and sometimes it's just like how I feel. I thought, no, effort. Because you were seeing me. Yeah. That's <laughs> but, but just coming back to that, you know, you, you, in the, you finance small businesses, and you have a credit committee, and, and sometimes the entrepreneurs have to present there. <laughs> if a guy arrives in those shorts, does let me let me tell you a live situation. Uh, two weeks ago, two yeah. three weeks ago, a client flew up from Cape Town to meet our credit committee. Five five people in the credit committee. Uh, I'm perhaps the more formal one in dressing. Maybe I'll wear a jacket with a suit. But the other guys are fairly okay in the credit. But this <laughs> came in a brewing company, uh, ponytail, scruffy beard, earring, uh, this felt schooners, mm -hmm. socks, shorts. And uh, asking us for like, I think it was three million rand. Yeah. Right. This is obviously after many discussions and whatever. But we didn't judge him by the way, because we only deal with entrepreneurs, one. Mm. Two, he's in the craft 
kind of a trade. So mm. it's in context, you see. Like even you, the way you dress with your jeans and whatever, you, given your trade of what you're doing, it's in context. It's in context. So I'm judging. I, I, I think we do judge book by the covers, mm. but we judged him by his context rather mm. than. So if he and some people do overdress and comes and I can say I, I, we can see it. I can say, listen, you don't normally wear a tie. Mm. You feel out of place. Why don't you take it off? Just mm. take it off. Take the jacket off. Roll. Be comfortable, and then, and then we can start talking. So yeah, that was okay. Well, uh, we've uh, got to take a break now. After the break, we'll continue our discussion around formality. Welcome back. This is the Avoided Debate and today we're talking about formality. Before the break we were talking about clothing, the formality of clothing and uh, what we think about before getting dressed in the morning. Is it our context? Is who we're seeing uh, during the day? And uh, do we judge uh, one another a little too much in terms of uh, what each other are wearing? I want to move the discussion now to, um, to words, to language. You know that's a big thing if that I listen to, to language, but there's a, there's a whole bunch of, uh, you see I use the word colloquialism, mm. uh, uh, words that, uh, that sometimes also I feel might be inappropriate that you're in a meeting and somebody might start swearing um, uh, as part of the language that might be using the F word uh, all the time. And then there might be a context where you go into sort of one of the banks in South Africa have got a very, it's part of their culture to swear. You know, you'd go there and you're in the meetings and everyone's swearing and you don't feel it's out of, out of uh, kilter. And then, yet, and then you would go into another space and somebody might be go using OMG and uh, you know, WTF and, and all these uh, little acronyms and they might actually say them. And that, that also I is different. So what do you feel about, about words? I think again context is so important because I think fortunately or unfortunately um, a lot of our language is influenced by text, you know, the short short texts, we, we want to say things quickly when we uh, pass on a message via social media and then you've got to become conscious then about how that would translate in a live situation. Yeah. Because again, depending on context and depending on audience, it may not be suited. And um, you know, that particular, if you're you know, having a conversation about a very serious opportunity, might be a deal breaker for the person that you're having conversation with. Yeah. So I always suggest, you know, start off, I mean, you never wanna um, come off as too formal, you know, you're not writing an exam, an English exam, but at least the basics, the grammar, check your spelling. Um, we talk about writing. Writing, yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about particular writing. Um, or even when you're making a call, you know, good afternoon, Mr. So-and-so, I received your number. You know, you can't just say, hi, Alon, how are you? Yeah. Uh, some, for some people that is offensive is to say, who are you and why do you know me? So, you know, it's, it's a personal 
preference and then culturally as well you know um, you know the, the, the in some communities looking at someone in the eye is considered offensive and other people think when you don't look them in the eye you you're hiding you're shady, something yeah. you know so it's all context um, yeah. at the end of the day and having the discernment to really say what what is appropriate hmm. um, in that in that situation and talking about the the sort of mr. thing and mrs. thing you know I, I, I travel a lot in in the rest of Africa and um, particularly in the uh, francophone countries the 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 monsieur uh, and you and the surname uh, of you do not use a first name mm. and I, you know and I'm so used to culturally saying Kumar and Manlisa mm. and and I was the person I was with was, was uh, to me you just even though even though you've met this person three or four times it's still Mr. whatever in in that context but let me ask you something Kumar and uh, just talking about and I just always putting you in these uh, credit situations <laughs> but le let's say that that person came in and said hey dude give me you know give me some mm. like if they, they come in and they try to be Too very familiar, familiar with you no so despite you talking about the example I gave the yeah yeah, yeah they, him he came across another. very business uh, professional mm. you know not formal not uh, uh, you know talking at a slang and a bra or whatever it is business formal so it communicated well you know that was that was fine but if he came in the other way we would have now been over judging the book by the you know you'd be forced to I mean, yeah it would be mm. so language now becomes actually very very potent because now he he could either get the funding or not based on how he spoke to you mm. the tone his yeah. familiarity tone is very important um, I think I don't know I, I've, I've I maybe come from a school where that I went to a girls school and that was emphasized throughout our schooling um, that tone is so important depending on who you're talking to down to your to your uh, um, fellow s uh, schoolmates um, because it can be misinterpreted we don't hear things the same way mm. you know so you have to strike a balance to say what is the appropriate tone I mean there's a place for I mean we have it offline I mean not that we're pretending to the audience but offline we, we you know we have our casual languages and because we're familiar with each other mm. but you'll recall in the beginning when I started I, I was not formal but I was you know appropriate with you because I didn't I didn't know you you mm. know so as you become as you become more familiar you know what the boundaries are and, w and where to take certain things and and where not to take them yeah. that's why there's a duality here, you know, between. Uh, you said something in the beginning when we started about you don't try and deviate from your core. Mm. So for me, this is important that we all have a default line for ourselves, the setting that we, our default line may be very formal, very informal, or somewhere in the middle, that you're authentic with that and you can kind of adjust up or down. Mm. Uh, with variance depending on the context. Mm. Mm. But if you're over kind of doing that, then you, you know, you're, you're not going to enjoy it. Yeah. Mm. And then it's difficult for the other person. There's no consistency with, with people to understand who you are. Even for yourself, I think you'd be sure. confused. But, but it just, he, he, here's the sort of the hypothetical. And, and this has actually happened to me. So I don't wear suits. I wear suits to funerals. That's it. But I don't wear suits in a, in a business context. And I was given a, an instruction by a client to say that at the launch, 
it, you will be wearing a suit because the company culture of the client is that of suit. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I went through, am I going to be fake in terms of, in terms of or am I just going to be, uh, am, am I just going to, is it respectful? Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of debate that went in my mind mm -hmm. is that am I fake or am I respecting of that request? It wasn't a request, it's more like a demand, but, <laughs> but am I respecting that? Mm. So, so how do you sort of navigate, here you hear the problem about where's your line, but when are you disrespecting somebody else? Mm. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a tricky one. I would, uh, in that situation, I would fall more unrespecting mm. because I think it says so much more about your character in that, yes, you are who you are, but you have the uh, ability to respect other people's differences to yours. Mm. Um, and, and that is true of you anyway, mm. you know, and the suit won't, won't change that. Mm. Um, so that I would lean more to being to towards being respectful rather than I'm just going to be myself. Yeah. yeah. Let's come to... Um, what did you do? I wore the suit. I wore the it's suit. character. Um, and, and I've worn it since, since that time. But always the, the, the sort of the, the reason is respect. Mm. It's not uh, because I go through that. That's not me. I'm uncomfortable in a suit. It do I don't feel normal in a suit. It's not my, like I don't wear it every day. And the irony is I used to, you know, as really? in my 20s, I, I used to wear a suit and tie you. every day. And then I just thought one day I said, it's not who I am. Let's let's move into um, the, the the space of uh, introductions. So when you introduce people to to one another, uh, are there <laughs> is there certain kinds of formalities there? Just remember their names. Firstly, <laughs> 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 uh. yeah, I think you know it. You know when you're put into a situation where somebody expects you to, you know, there's a please introduce me to someone. Sure. I, I, for myself, I think it's always just have kind of a social environment because I think some people, um, you know, feel, uh, what's the word? Intruded when they somebody's forced upon them, especially mm. in a social or a business networking session, you know. So it's it's always good to to just kind of start off normally as you know politely, um, so and so meet Alan and so forth, and then in the conversation, things will start to unpack themselves, and the and the rapport will start to build, versus kind of putting someone in front of someone and saying, "This is so and so," and and um, you know kind of deal with it. Because um, I find that uncomfortable That's when it's done to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when it's done to me when somebody dumps someone on my lap. <laughs> like, okay. Uh, I've dumped someone on many people's laps. But, but uh, here, here's the thing, right? Here's another hypothetical. You know two people. One is, is uh, Mr. Mr. or Mrs. so-and-so kind of person. Mm -hmm. They're very formal. The other ones, hey, dude, how's it going, Jeez. dude? That kind of person. How do you introduce them? Do you go? That's one for you, Kumar. This Mr. So and So, please, Mr. So meet Mr. So and So, or I'll introduce them with my style. So I'm say, hey, here's Elon Race. This is how I know him, yeah. and uh, and I'll introduce this other person. First names and yeah. surname. First and surname. Yeah. First and surname always. Yeah. Right. Forget this Mr. and all that nonsense. That's my approach. Right, so I think you've got to again. There's this balance between your your natural, authentic line, 
and what you're adjusting up and down. My preference is try and stay close to the pot for your authentic client. Mm. So I wouldn't introduce someone as Mr. whatever necessarily. You know, it's not. And, uh, and then I would give a clue about, okay, you can see, you know, your poles apart, but I think there's something in common between you, you know. Mm. You may dress differently or talk differently, but there's something the two of you need to talk about. You have this common thing. So I'm giving them the clue that there's different, uh, something like that. What about, uh, we, we, have to take, we have to take one. a break now, but <laughs> when we come back, I want to talk to you about um, men and women, and if there are any formality differences uh, from a gender point of view. But uh, we'll deal with that right after the break. Welcome back. Uh, we are now in the end uh, third of the avoided debate. Uh, we, today we're talking about formality. Before the break, we were talking about uh, very much about different people in terms of introductions, how you introduce different people. What about uh, dress? We've spoken about language. We've spoken about all sorts of things regarding formality. But we haven't spoken about gender, about uh, people from, uh, and it could be mixed in with culture. Okay, but uh, with gender, how do you how do you deal with different people f of different genders? Are you the same with a woman that you are with a man? I've never been conscious of it, to be quite honest. Um, I I think when you do introductions, always give context of, um, especially when you I, okay when you're introducing a female to a male. Because, you know, we don't all think alike, and I, I don't want to go there, but give context as to why you're introducing and what the person does or what both of them do so that there's no mixed messages that you're trying to hook people up. Mm. <laughs> you know, so in that regard, I... So let me put it to you now, because I keep giving you the hypothetical. You walk into a boardroom, you're presenting, it's a whole bunch of women. Mm -hmm. You walk into a boardroom, it's a whole bunch of men. Do you do anything different? Do you act no. differently? You're exactly the same. Exactly the same. Kumara, would you are you are you the same if under those two contexts? Uh, subconsciously there must be something different going on. Yeah. There would be, we're human beings. So but consciously not. But I acknowledge under the surface there must be. Mm. That's yeah. why it's important to it also matters context. if you're single or not. You know? That's the thing. Because <laughs> no, not everybody wears rings, you know. <laughs> Are yeah, you looking at my head? Yeah. No, I'm not. I you didn't sound, mean to, but I, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying it's important um, because we don't all think the same. Yeah. I've, that's what I've learned. Yeah, okay. So give something context very quickly. So why why does this all matter? We've spoken about formality today. You know, because this is formality is in the context of a business entrepreneurial discussion yeah as entrepreneurs we like our own rebellious identity somewhat but we're trying to achieve some kind of results or goals for the end at a meeting for the life for the year whatever you and so when you're engaging with people it's a means to achieve that result mm. and it's a simple fact whether we like it or not people do initially judge the book by the cover mm. so you you sensitizing yourself to that, you know, mm. and also some contextual and cultural norms so that you can have your meeting or session in the right mm. uh, mode and to achieve your result. Mm. So that's where this matters. Yeah. If you want the right result, then be sensitive or cognizant of these issues because otherwise you're not going to get results out of it. Yeah, so and, I, that? I, I, and I'd go a step further. I would, I would 
So the hyperbole of this is that, that if people are insensitive to the importance of understanding other people's levels of formality, mm. the cultural, the language, the, the dress, all that, that they are less likely to do successful business than those that are more sensitive as an average. Uh, there are always yeah. exceptions, but as an average. And then the converse, if they are hypersensitive, yes. it also comes across as, mm. you know, you're going to, you know. Unapproachable, yeah. No, no, oh, yeah. like you're not authentic. It's, it's oh, yeah, hypersensitive in that way. And you're overpandering, you know. But then a guy like um, Steve Jobs, when he was alive, could walk into any context in his tur black turtleneck, no matter what. Because he was Steve Jobs. Because he was Steve Jobs. So your brand also is another big factor of who you are mm. and your brand in terms of the relationship with, with that formality. Because he could walk into um, a, any cultural setting. context, any, any setting, and still wear his turtleneck and be comfortable. Except the CEO's dinner, I think, at the White House, right? And do you have to wear a uh, penguin suit? Yeah, I think uh, that's right. I've seen that picture. Mm. So he even uh, uh, capitulated then. Please stay tuned to see what's coming up after the break. We'll be right back. When they nod in agreement, then you've got it right. Because the vision has to come bottom up, not top down. Welcome to the Leadership Series on the Big Small Business Show. Now we've uh, started a brand new series last week with uh, somebody who is one of South Africa's, in my opinion, best corporate leaders. As somebody is, uh, is the embodiment of ser servant leadership. Um, we have Bonang Mohale uh, in studio with us. And we are going to be talking about different aspects of leadership over the next couple of weeks. Last week we spoke about servant leadership. Today we're going to talk about vision and how that relates to, to leadership. Welcome back. So, so <coughs> vision, we're supposed to, as leaders, be visionary and, and have a vision. It, it, what is your, your perspective on that? So let me take it back first with leadership. Because anybody that feels called upon to lead is indeed a leader. So leadership therefore requires a number of things. One, some sort of a compelling vision. Mm. Number two, a little bit of courage. And then three, integrity. So for me, vision is important because even biblically, uh, I think uh, we say where there is no vision, the people perish. Yes. But also we know that the quickest way towards disaster mm. is to start with action programs without a vision. And mm. if we relate back to the country, that South Africa's problems have nothing to do with availability of resources, but our inability just to manage, not even lead. When you have a leader, you have a positive sentiment. You've got a positive uplift. I was in Paris three days after Emmanuel Macron, the Parisians were working proud. Mm. Eight hours after President Cyril Ramaphosa was elected president of the ANC, the rent breached the below 12 to the US dollar. That's positive sentiment. Mm. A visionary leader then says, how do I take this momentum? How do I harness this force, this impetus, towards creating something that is much greater than all of us? So having a vision simply says, how can I get onto a ship 
a boat or even an aeroplane and take my faith and put it in the hands of the captain. Because at 33,000 feet, there's very little I can do to intervene. It's about trusting the jockey. But isn't vision, it's creating the vision and leadership about creating the picture for people that they, they will have a better future. And then spelling out the, how that will uh, manifest for them. You used two important words. You spoke about they and you spoke about better. So vision means can I paint a picture of a new world and take my people to that new world where they've never been on a composite basis that feels substantially better than today. It's only when the force, the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. Because change is painful. It's mm. like transformation. It's a lot of hard work. Mm. But the other word that you use that is important says they. So often you get given an assignment as an MD, president or CEO, you think it's your job to come up with a vision. Good visionary servant good leadership goes and says, this company I'm new, I don't know anything about your company. You mm. guys know it all. Mm. I know maybe how to manage people, how to harness um, the energy of the rest of the people. So let me listen to you as to what are the three, four things that are keeping you awake at night. And then you play it back to them. When they nod in agreement, then you've got it right. Because the vision has to come bottom up, not top down. When you have an ability to hear, not just actively listen, your people will tell you what the problems are. If they can identify the problem, they also know the solution. You play back to them and say, what I heard you say is that we're going to turn left one degree. It takes slightly longer. But you don't have to waste more time to get their buy-in. Because the day you write it out as a vision statement, somebody walks and they look at it and they smile and say, that word came from me. Mm. The whole company looks at it and say, we co-created and co-crafted this, therefore we personally own it. The day you go, they don't say, the CEO left with that vision, therefore we need to restart another vision. They say, it is our vision for us to gift to the next leader. That's how you develop, build, continuance, and indeed success. So the, the beauty about the vision is that it is a dream on top of the mountain. It has to be slightly bigger and more challenging and more stretching than where people are. It takes you out of your comfort zone. So just practically, I, I take over a new business. I, and, and let's say there are 500 people in that business. How do I listen to everyone? Do, how do, do I get a sense from different people at different levels? But practically, I can't go and speak to everyone, 500 or 1,000 people. Or am I wrong? The ideal is to speak to every single solitary one because some of the breath test ideas and the most potent come from Memadi Teko who makes tea. It comes from Ubabu's Tolle who's a security guard. At uh, Shell, we were saved 167,000 litres, three swimming poolfuls of diesel that had just spilled in Alberton. Three million litres, 1.4 billion throughput because we spoke to the security guard. He felt important. On the 16th of December, when people were preparing to go on holiday, he said, I can smell something. That's when you have connected with people. At Shell, we've got 20,000 people 
when you include the 750 shell service stations. It's about starting and saying, I will touch every single solitary one of them. When you start by saying, but it's impossible, it will be half year before I start, mm. you're starting the wrong way. Mm. You start by saying, I'll speak to an exco of my six who report directly to me, then you go to a layer below, you then say, let me go and see the operations. So you go to your depots. Then you say, but I want to see the refinery. Then you say, but I want to see, and you have started, and you're making your notes. And for me, it starts by saying, guys, what are you busy with? And how can I help? It starts by saying, what business are we in? I did this on the 1st of January, 2009. One of my ex-co members said, we are in petrochemicals. The other one said, no, we are in oil and gas. The third said, we are an integrated energy company. Three different things. Now imagine how confused our people are. After we have done this exercise, we all agreed that we are going to have one vision. It can be all three, but we had already spoken to the 1,270 employees that work for SAPREF, the biggest refinery in the country, 180,000 barrels. And then we had also spoken to the security guards at the 20 depots that we had access to, 10 that we owned. But we had also gone to this filling station, the service stations, where people wear our brand with pride and the caps and the t-shirts. And it's about helping them to pour petrol and to clean the window. In the meantime, you're actively listening and the solution emerges. The vision. When we put it on the wall, the excitement, the energy was truly compelling. We've got a little bit of time left, and I want to maybe use it for the other ways once we've co-created this vision and we've articulated it. How do we then communicate it to, to our people? So first you now have a vision, you've crafted it, and you want it to be remembered, but also memorable. The shorter, the better. Once you've done that, you come to the next stage. You say, what then is our reason for existence? That becomes your mission statement. Again, you just want to document it for posterity's sake. But a good vision, a good mission statement leaves in people's hearts when you've been able to make the connection. And they say, this leader genuinely cares about us because they don't care about how much you know. So once you know that discernment, that difference, you then say, ah, now that I've got a compelling vision, how do I put systems and processes in place? And I go through a strategic planning process. You come back and say, ah, I now have a strategy. Leadership 101 tells us that um, the way to put this strategy in numbers is called the budget. You complete that process, you then say, how do I remember this? You've got IT, etc. And then lastly, you always want to go back to the people concerned. You then say, who are the people that are going to help me to execute on this vision with this mission and the four or five things that we want to achieve only for that year? Once that is in place, I will submit that there is nothing more important than then saying, what type of culture are we going to collectively create? This is the one time that culture comes from the top. Because when the top says it's okay to steal photocopying paper for my daughter's homework at home, yes. you give permission to the rest of the organization that they can start stealing this building one brick at a time. Culture is always set from the top. And when the culture says, I feel needed and wanted, I feel free to speak my mind. I am being heard, listened to. My views are actively solicited and taken seriously. That I feel that I own this company as much as the chairman, the CEO, and the president. 
then you have succeeded. That to me completes the job of a leader when you come into an organization. You look them in the eye and say, what I heard you say is you're going to turn left one degree and they're not in agreement. You'll know when you're succeeding because when the men go to the urinals, they don't say, the new board said, they said, we have decided mm. that we're going to turn left one degree. That's all we've got time for today. Yeah, next week, uh, I want to be talking to you about uh, the concept of courage and leadership. And uh, on that note, we're going to have to say goodbye. Do stay tuned uh, to see what's coming up next on the show. If you're doing construction, why in heaven's name would a venture capital want to fund a normal... And why is that? Because of the... They the want super returns. They take high risk. They want super returns. Welcome back. Uh, now, the song that we hear, both Kumar and I very often from entrepreneurs, is I can't find money. I can't access finance. No one wants to lend me money. And uh, I know that I certainly get very frustrated with hearing that because it uh, presumes that uh, you've taken no responsibility in terms of finding that money. I travel the, the world a lot, and particularly the rest of Africa, and I can tell you for a fact that South Africa is awash with funding for small business. There isn't a week that goes by where we aren't approached by some funder or another searching for entrepreneurs who are deserving of uh, funding. And I use those words uh, very, uh, very carefully, that are deserving of funding. So with me in the studio is uh, Kumaran Padiachi, CEO of Spartan SME Finance. And we're going to be talking about where to access this finance. And we're going to assume up front that you are deserving of that funding. So what do you... assumption. Yes. <laughs> so let, let's just start there. Because the access depends if you are deserving, right? Because if you're undeserving, you've got... Two things. You've got less choice than if you are sure. deserving. Is that right? Partly, that's one part of the, of the truth of the problem. One is that you're not deserving. So, so let me start with the bigger problem is that I think people are lazy. We, ourselves, me, you, everyone, human nature, but lazy. So sometimes we just want what easily comes to us. And uh, there's just the notion of the big four, five or six banks, but there's lots of other funders out there, niche funders for various different things. But uh, people are not uh, alive to searching for those things. So that's part of the problem. So if you only go approach five or you're only aware of five, then obviously in your mind, there's very few funders out there. Yeah. In reality, there's probably 200 in South Africa. 200 yeah. compared to the five. Yes. Big, right? So that's the first part of the problem if you're not researching properly. Second is that you issue you raised about deserving. If you're not viable or worthy or at the stage that warrants funding, then you can go knocking on all those doors and they're all gonna tell you no until you go and fix up the underlying issue and then come back. So one is not knowing who are out there and two is the deserving issue. So there's also in terms of access to funding this, what's very important to understand is that different people specialize in different parts of the cycle. Yes. And uh, in your, uh, you as an entrepreneur, i.e. startup versus mature. Okay. 
certain people specialize in different industries. Some people are, are yes. finance agriculture, yes. some manufacturing, etc. Yes. Certain financiers uh, finance different levels of risk. Yes. Okay. And so th you have to understand this in a three-dimensional matrix uh, point of view in a matrix. Just elaborate on that. Yes. Uh, so let's unpack a few of those things and show when it's inappropriate or where there's a then there's a clash, right? So on the life cycle, good starting point. Initially, when you're starting off, it's your own money or angel funding. Mm -hmm. Then a little bit of bank funding and maybe if it's a disruptive, innovative business, venture capitalist, early stage, then eventually private or, or, equity. Or, 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 or important there is family. Yeah, that would be in the angel investing uh, in the early yes, stage. So but family, family friends and, and fools. fools yourself in the beginning, then angel investors, then maybe VC. And not for a bo that would only be for certain types of business that's warrant for venture capitalists. It can't be, I'm at this stage, venture capitalists should fund me. They generally will like a technology-based business as a generalization. If you're doing construction, why in heaven's name would a venture capital want to fund a normal... And why is that? Because of the... They the want super returns. They take high risk, they want super returns. So it's a highly innovative business that will give them a super return. A normal construction business is not going to give them that return. So if, you're a, if a guy's starting up a construction business you've been running for a year or two, don't go to a VC. Yes. Right. Yes. That's exactly the, what right. you're talking about. Exactly. It's the wrong address. Yes. Know where you are in that cycle and what they require and where to approach. Then you'll have a better alignment. Second example I think you used, you said the second categories, they specialize in different types of uh, sectors. So you get someone that's an agriculture-only funder. And if you run an agriculture business, it's, you have a better chance approaching a funder that specializes in the agricultural sector rather than a normal general one. Or you get some funders specialize in the construction or property sector, again, or the transport sector, again, you're better off there than some other, and there's not, a speciality there. And they understand your business. They understand your business, they understand the sector and what you want the funding for. You have a better prospect of getting funding from them. Then you have some that have different level of risk. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, an industrial funder will, will have a certain appetite, a bank will have a certain, an SME funder will have a different level of, of appetite for risk. These things are very important to know in research. And what's also important is, as you understand that, with a higher risk, that you pay more for that risk yeah, in sure. terms of the cost of money. Sure. And that needs to be factored into your, your business. So yes. a low margin business, yes. okay, which is high risk, okay, is going to be unlikely to afford Anyone's a high cost capital. Mm. And it, true, and it's also not attractive for an equity investor if they wanted to have an equity investor. True. Okay. And that's another form of, of financing, is equity. Is yes. that, you, you, that people... It's expensive, it but yes. But, uh, but, but it might be the only way to get funding because it is, uh, it is a way that you have uh, often funding and something else. So let's talk about that in terms of that when you're looking for these particular funders, that it's not just money that you're looking for. It's other things, access to, to market, you know, networks, um, expertise, uh, all those kind of things. Talk to me about that. A normal debt funder will not give you those other things. Yes. Because it's more transactional, think Nando's drive-through. Yeah. Right. Whereas an equity, if someone's a shareholder in your business, if, they, if, you take, if you're not borrowing money from them, but you're asking them to invest money in your business, then it's to be expected that they may 
contribute other things okay. to their mutual interest. So if there was a, a, a graph or a, a scale, you'd start a, a, a sort of vanilla funding through banks at one end with low levels of input, and at the other end there would be, let's call it a specialized private equity who understands, who would then open markets, etc. There's Thanks. more value yes. uh, other than the money at yes. that side. Yes. But there's a whole gambit of, of financing in between yes. to various degrees moving in that direction. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, I, think the, I just want to end off here by saying that, that for all those entrepreneurs out there um, who are saying that they can't get funding, and I, I, I say this with the deepest respect, make sure that you have a compelling economic right to exist before you go to funding. Make sure that you are going to targeting the right kinds of funders that you need and could afford. And ensure that, that if you are in a speci specialty that uh, has got certain specialty funders, that you go to that address first before you go to generic funders. Well, it's time for my reflections uh, for today. And today we're going to do another Carlson Dutz uh, cartoon. The cartoon you see uh, on your screen is with uh, Carlson there interviewing. There's a CV, a resume on his desk with some young gentleman who says, because I have an MBA in entrepreneurship, I understand that I should be paid 150,000 US dollars per annum. And Carlson is reflecting there or responding there, because you have an MBA, I'll pay you $50,000 and spend the other $100,000 retraining you. Now, before everyone with an MBA gets uh, upset with me, this is no slight on MBAs. They are a fantastic uh, degree and uh, I know a lot of MBAs, I respect a lot of MBAs, um, but this is more about really two things, two things I want to get across in this cartoon. The first is that your degree is not an indicator of your success, it is just a tool that allows you to think about certain things in a different way that you might or might not have. And I find it very disconcerting, and this actually, this incident happened to me where a young man who just got his MBA felt that because he had that degree, he had the experience in order to go and run his own business. And of course that wasn't uh, the case. You he had absolutely no experience in running his business. And I think there is a balance between you know, an education, whether formal or informal, in other words, whether it's degreed or not degreed, you've got it through, through reading or through um, uh, watching things online and that kind of, that kind of education versus experience uh, in, in terms of real life experience in the marketplace. And I think the ideal entrepreneurs are the ones that have both. But having said that, the opposite is, is true as well. I have seen totally uneducated people, people with a matric or even less, become extremely successful entrepreneurs. And at the same time, many people who don't have degrees come to me and say they feel inadequate because they say, I don't have a, a BCom or I don't have an MBA, therefore I can't be an entrepreneur. I think that's poppycock. I think it is absolutely poppycock that the fact that you don't have a degree doesn't mean that you're successful, that can be successful. Experience, drive, and all the other characteristics of uh, entrepreneurship are incredibly potent indicators of success. An MBA, a degree, are just merely additional tools to help you think. Some people need them, some people don't. And that's uh, really up to you.
Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I uh, hope you enjoyed that cartoon. As always, remember, if you think it, write it down and make it a reality. The courage to grow is business. The Big Small Business Show made possible by MTN Business, a new world of business. And by Chartered Accountants of South Africa. Lead your industry with a responsible partner. Partner with the CASA today.